Welcome to the podcast, Life is a Story We Tell Ourselves. I'm Anna Murphy. My father, Don Murphy, and I will be bringing stories to your family each week. We want to share stories with you that encourage us all to find the extraordinary in the ordinary through reminiscing and storytelling, because life is a story we tell ourselves. Our first story is about a tyrannical lunchtime monitor in grammar school and what happened when my father insults a teacher on the schoolyard. Let's listen together. Mrs. Christmas was a tall, skinny, and fair-skinned lady who could have easily been cast as the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz. Every day, those of us who brought our lunch followed an unbending ritual. We would line up in front of the cafeteria door where we could buy milk. If our parents had enough money, we could buy the coveted chocolate milk to go with our brown bag lunch, elevating it to the culinary level of tolerable. We ate under a covered shade structure to protect us from the hot sun, an amenity my mother had lobbied for during her tenure as some officer in the PTA. From a distance, it reminded you of a chicken coop without the chicken wire enclosure, replete with the noisy cackling of pre-adolescence. The noise of our chatter often rose to the level of deafening, and Mrs. Christmas had little patience for a bunch of noisy kids. So she used what leverage she had to quiet us down. It was one of the vilest and abusive uses of power I have ever witnessed. Toward the end of lunch, there was dessert, that we could also line up to buy at the cafeteria door. Ice cream. It was the highly anticipated time of the day, and the lunch yard chatter often rose to a fever pitch as the time came for ice cream. That is, until Mrs. Christmas decided to put an end to it by blowing her whistle that was always clenched between her teeth and screaming above the noise in her shrill voice, If you kids don't be quiet, there will be no ice cream today. A barely controllable hush would fall upon the crowd, as if someone had used a giant fly swatter to squash the buzzing of a fly. Of course, like some flies that you just can't kill, there remained a quiet buzzing in the crowd, as some kids just could not stop talking. We would hit shove, pinch, and otherwise cajole one another to remain quiet, which often resulted in more noise, prompting Mrs. Christmas to repeat her tyrannical threat. When we finally settled down, Mrs. Christmas directed those of us who had money for ice cream to line up and keep our mouths shut. So we did as we were told, with the anticipation that soon our mouths would be opened again as we unwrapped our wooden spoons keeping them with ice cream, and then sucking in the silky cream down our throats until brain freeze transported us to a little bit of heaven. That's not the only schoolyard memory my dad has. Listen in on what happened when he called out a teacher for showing off. Nobody likes a show off. This is something you learn at a very early age. On the playground of every school in the country, show-offs were denigrated and quickly put in their place by their peers. Teachers, on the other hand. Well, one day at the close of afternoon recess, my fourth grade teacher lined us up as usual to return to class. However, 
On this day, we took a detour as we returned to class and ended up standing at the edge of a basketball court. We were made to stand and watch another male teacher doing fancy layups over and over again. Once again, the devil in me, or maybe this time it was really an angel, made me yell out derisively, Show off! The male teacher dropped the ball, stopped his antics, and walked over to the line where I stood and grabbed me. He pulled me from the line and said he'd show me off. He ordered me to stand under the rim of the basket with my arms outstretched. He ordered my teacher to bring the other kids by to see the show off. I stood there whimpering as my class filed by, my arms in agonizing pain. Then, to my surprise, one little girl, Sherry Dupron, who I had a crush on for the longest, stepped from the line and simply said, Don't cry, Donald. Sherry had noticed me and felt sorry for me. And though the actions of that teacher had a lasting impact on my attitude toward public school teachers, I refused to send my children to public school. A bond was formed between Sherry and me that lasted well into our college years. Though nothing romantic ever came of it, and there are many stories to tell about our friendship, a punishment by a dyed-in-the-wool show-off led to a memory that transcends the poetic. What a great story. Up next, my father tells the story of a family hiking trip on the John Muir Trail in the High Sierra Mountain Range on the occasion of his father's death. With my mother, eight-year-old brother, and me at six years old, we hiked to Gladys Lake in search of peace. Let's listen together. In the summer of 1995, my father died after suffering with Parkinson's disease for a number of years. I was not saddened by his death, nor did I grieve deeply. Not because I didn't care, rather because I knew he was out there, somewhere, unknown and uncharted. So I decided, along with Lorena, my wife, to gather our two little ones, then eight and six years old, and explore the unknown and uncharted along the John Muir Trail from Red's Meadow to Gladys Lake. It was a heavy snow year, and Red's Meadow did not open until August 1st that year, just a week after the death of my father. We arrived a few days ahead of our scheduled departure for the high country, to get acclimated to the elevation. We took the opportunity to do some many-day hikes to Devil's Post Pile National Monument and to Rainbow Falls. The thing about hiking is that without realizing it, you are enveloped in a bubble of wonderment. It's just you and the world as it was intended to be, raw, wild, full of intoxicating smells, and if you are not careful, dangers that could cripple you or end your life. But we never thought about the danger as we stood spellbound in front of the devil's post pile. After spending years interpreting such sights as a ranger, I didn't want to know any of the details of how the formation came to be. I wasn't interested in the geology and made no attempt to explain to my children the forces of nature that formed such a wonder. No, it was enough to stand and be inspired, to imagine, to be filled with a sense of awe, 
Wildflowers were bursting out all over, as if eager to get in a few licks of beauty after the domination by snow for so many months. The trail to Rainbow Falls was lined with flowers, a path of royal color fit for a royal family's entry into a city of beauty. In the early afternoon, the light was not quite right for seeing a rainbow, but Rainbow Falls was no less spectacular than its larger cousins in Yosemite many miles to the north. Little kids have a quiet, agitated excitement when they become overwhelmed by something as mighty as a waterfall. It's a kind of fear, wonderment, and disbelief all wrapped up into a package they often carry with them for many years, like cosmic baggage. So the little ones stood silent, sending a silent message to their father that fills me with longing to this day. The sense of longing reminded me of nearly 40 years past, when my family migrated from Louisiana to California. I was only four years old and have no exact memory of the trip, rather vague impressions, one of which was standing weak-kneed on the rim of the Grand Canyon. It was a side trip my mother had planned and memorialized in photographs with her boxy Kodak brownie. The camera chronicled the Murphy family's many trips to national parks. It also served as a capsule of my mother's restless life that ended far too soon. To this day, I am not certain if she was faithfully fulfilling Rudyard Kipling's unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, or like Edna St. Vincent Millay, burning the candle at both ends. Whichever it may be, the natural beauty that she saw around her led her to wander wherever the spirit led her. So it was that early the next morning after our day hike to Rainbow Falls, we started north on the John Muir Trail for our camp at Gladys Lake. We hiked a few hours ahead of our Wrangler, who packed our gear to take to the lake and set up our camp. We forded streams swollen with water from newly melted snow, our children straddling logs to cross the streams. We trod through snow fields and over low passes, getting lost once as I was busy reading a map instead of paying attention to trail markers that designated an important turn of the trail up a series of switchbacks. But we only lost an hour or two, and on the positive side, our wrangler had set up camp by the time we finally arrived. The highlight of this hike was fishing and my youngest son catching his first fish and the only fish we caught on the entire trip. An old chief ranger had taught me how to catch fish in the high Sierra lakes, so I took my son's small spinning rod and tied a bobber at the end of the fishing line. From the bobber I strung 18 inches of leader, and at the end tied a small black mosquito. It was mid-morning, and we were fishing Rosalie Lake, which was just over a small rock outcropping, just north of Gladys Lake. My son made his first cast, and as he was slowly reeling in it, a trout rose and took the fly. Unusually calm, my son reeled in the fish, and the joy and smiles never left his face for the rest of our stay at Gladys Lake. We stayed at Gladys Lake for a week, and went on many day hikes. 
I'm not a good enough writer to relate the power and magnificent of being in the heart of wildness. What we experience is, I suppose, embedded in the very fiber of our beings, and the change of the structure of the neurons and millions of synaptic connections in the brain, and the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, I suppose we are very different people for that experience. Days later, we wandered back down the trail, meeting fellow travelers along the way. Most were on horseback. A few walked. We didn't see any other children on the hike, which I thought was too bad. But then I suppose most parents wouldn't take an eight- and six-year-old on a backcountry hike. But we are different in that respect because we value the earth the way it is and have a joy in sharing it with our children, as my mother had shared with hers. A few days later, we attended my father's funeral in Los Angeles. My father, a Baptist minister, had a traditional Baptist funeral, and the preacher who eulogized Dad preached about grace. He felt my father exhibited all of the qualities inherent in a person of grace. Grace often defined as the unmerited favor from God is what I find all around us in the natural world. High in the Sierra, sitting beside Gladys Lake, with my family battling mosquitoes and warmed by a dancing fire, we could feel the unmerited and unconditional favor from a world with wonders too deep and too mysterious to ever fully comprehend, a world that is eternal and speaks of a kind of immortality that when one attempts to hold on to it, it seems to fade away only to return in unexpected moments of silence and darkness, creating a feeling of homesickness for a land that is out there, somewhere, unknown and uncharted. I remember that hike and camping trip. It was like being in another world and being lucky enough to share that world with my family. I know the biologist E.O. Wilson wrote a book back in the 90s called Biophilia. In part, it was about the healing and therapeutic effect the natural environment can have, especially parks and wilderness. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it really has, you know, and in fact, shortly after that book came out, uh, E.O. Wilson and I, along with the boxer George Foreman, were interviewed on the subject. I think it was on the old Osgood files, and George Foreman had been a juvenile delinquent in Texas, in, in Houston, I believe it was, and was sent to the Job Corps in Washington State where he had to work in the wilderness. And during the interview, he talked about how the experience changed his life. I mean, he was um, just so joyful in talking about his experience. He said he had never seen uh, trees and streams, and it really changed his life. It was a, a watershed moment in his life. And uh, in addition to that, back in 1865, the famed uh, landscape architect, Frederick Law Olmsted Sr., he wrote about the positive effects of the environment the environment can have in his now legendary report uh, called uh, Yosemite and the Mariposa Grove, which he wrote to the California legislature. So I have an excerpt here I wanna share with uh, everyone because it's important uh, to by uh, the concept of how the natural world uh, really contributes to our health and well-being. So here we go. 
He says it's the main duty of government, if it is not the sole duty of government, to provide means of protecting all citizens in the pursuit of happiness against the obstacles mm -hmm. otherwise insurmountable, which the selfishness of individuals or a combination of individuals is liable to interpose to that pursuit. It's really interesting because he's really invoking uh, the Constitution here and uh, the constitutional um, guarantee that people should be able to pursue happiness and he's connecting that directly to uh, wilderness and the preservation of natural and cultural resources. And so right after that, <clears throat> as I continue reading from his report, <clears throat> excuse me, he says it's a, it is a scientific fact that the occasional contemplation of natural scenes of an impressive character, particularly if this contemplation occurs in connection with relief from ordinary cares, change of air and change of habits, is favorable to the health and vigor of men and especially to the health and vigor of their intellect beyond any other conditions which can be offered them that it not only gives pleasure for the time being, but increases the subsequent capacity for happiness and the means of securing happiness. The want of such occasional recreation where men and women are habitually pressed by their business or household cares often results in a class of disorders, the characteristic quality of which is mental disability, sometimes taking the severe forms of softening of the brain paralysis, palsy, monomania, or insanity, but more frequently of mental and nervous excitability, moroseness, melancholy, or irascibility, incapacitating the subject for the proper exercise of the intellectual and moral forces. And then he concludes by saying, but in this country, at least it is not those who have the most important responsibilities in state affairs or in commerce who suffer most from lack of recreation. And here he's talking about outdoor recreation in the wilderness. But he goes on to say that women suffer more than men and the agricultural class is more largely represented in our insane asylums than the professional. And for this and other reasons, it is these classes to which the opportunity for such recreation is the greatest blessing. I just think that's powerful and is written back in 1865 and, and points out, especially now with our isolation uh, due to the COVID-19 restrictions, um, how important it is uh, that we interact with, with nature and that we're outdoors uh, and have some sense of connection uh, to the natural environment. So what do you think can be done today to, to better forge that connection to the natural environment and to help maintain it? Well, you know, I'm happy to report that if around the country, many park and recreation departments are finding ways to connect people to the natural environment through their local parks, even uh, during this uh, period of uh, social distancing. Um, I th just think our elected uh, officials need to be more, become more educated. Um, our doctors and, and scientists need to use their bullet pulpit to communicate how important it is that people stay con connected to the natural world. Uh, and I think employers uh, need to uh, 
uh, encourage their their people to get out into the natural world. And even um, as some uh, lar larger corporations have done, um, you know, develop campuses, uh, corporate campuses where people uh, can get out and interact with the natural environment, even during their their working hours. Those are just some of the the simple ideas I think that could be easily uh, implemented. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that it makes a huge difference to my day if I get up from my desk and, and go for a walk, even, you know, just for 10 or 15 minutes to just kind of feel the nature, get some fresh air and a change of scenery. It's always very important to to be able to put that as part of your, your daily exercise and, and interactions. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And I hope that our listeners find their own ways to stay connected to the natural world, whether it be through their local parks or out in the wilderness. Thank you for listening to this week's Life is a Story We Tell Ourselves. Please remember to subscribe and share with your family and friends. You can also find us on the web at lifeisastorypodcast.com. Join us next Tuesday to find out what happened when Van Gogh and my father fell in love with their cousins. From our family to yours, stay safe, share happiness, and remember, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing.